Welcome to a Friday night edition of Navara Live. I'm delighted to be joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Michael, I'm extraordinarily well. Change of scene, and I get to be closer to you. I'm here in the uh, Navara HQ on a wonderful Friday evening. Very happy to be doing some really big stories tonight. First story. Partygate is back in the news. I can't say it's a moment I've been waiting on tenterhooks for, but we're going to take you through the most essential developments of the past two days. Now, the first is that today the publication of the interim findings of the Privileges Committee into the lockdown parties, and in particular, whether Boris Johnson misled the House of Commons. They've come out. And they suggest Boris Johnson probably did mislead MPs when he said no rules were broken. So this is how the committee justify that interim finding. They say the evidence strongly suggests that breaches of guidance would have been obvious to Mr. Johnson at the time he was at the gatherings. There is evidence that those who were advising Mr. Johnson about what to say to the press and in the House were themselves struggling to contend that some gatherings were within the rules. The Director of Communications stated in a WhatsApp of the 25th of January 2022 to a number 10 official in relation to the gathering of the 19th of June 2020 that, quote, haven't heard any explanation of how it's in the rules. In a separate WhatsApp exchange with a number 10 official of the 25th of January 2022, in relation to the gathering of the 19th of June 2020, the Director of Communications stated, quote, I'm struggling to come up with a way this one is in the rules in my head, unquote. And in response to a suggestion that they describe the event as reasonably necessary for work purposes, they said, not sure that one works, does it? Also blows another great gaping hole in the Prime Minister's account doesn't it? So in short, they were lying and they knew they were. That's the impression we get from those messages. Um, of course, Boris Johnson doesn't agree. This was his comment after the report. Just imagine that um, I, had, I had genuinely thought that stuff was going on in number 10 uh, that was COVID rule breaking. And everybody will understand the implications of that, if I'd known that, everyone will understand the implications of that for the government, for our ability to, to fight COVID, what a story that would be. You would expect me in, in, to have immediately communicated something to my closest advisors and officials saying, what is this? What is this problem we've got here with this, this event? What are we doing about, doing about it? There's nothing at all to show that. Why not? Because I believed that what we were doing was implicitly within the rules. And that's why I said what I said in the House of Commons. And that, and that is why I think, and I thank the committee for their, for their labours. And, and um, you know, I'm sorry it's all been going on for, for so long. That defence might work for some people, but the defence is essentially, if this were to be true, I would have had to have been so unbelievably irresponsible. It's just implausible. Now, that doesn't work if you're Boris Johnson. Obviously, we can all imagine him being that irresponsible. That's very much in his nature. Um, in any case, I don't think anything in the Partygate news is particularly surprising. What is new, what we hadn't predicted, is the news this week that Keir Starmer has hired Sue Gray as his new chief of staff. This is controversial, as she wrote the Partygate report that led to his resignation. Last night, former Boris Johnson ally, I suppose still uh, Boris Johnson ally, Jacob Rees-Mogg, was fuming. The neutrality of the civil service is a fundamental part of our constitution, vital for a functioning and trusted democracy. Our Brexiteers have been criticised for saying the civil service was part of the blob and wasn't impartial, but now everyone can see why. 
It's not the Brexiteers who are politicizing the civil service, they have politicized themselves. And that is why this is so deeply troubling. It is hard not to feel that she is being rewarded, offered a plum job for effectively destroying a prime minister, creating a coup. This latest act blows apart the idea of civil service impartiality, the progressive leaning mindset of those manning, or rather not manning, the desks of Whitehall, has not gone unnoticed by anyone in and around Westminster. The question must now be asked, and ministers will be asking it, how many other of the people they're working with may be off to aid Keir Starmer's operation in the next weeks, few weeks or months? In the case of Sue Gray, this appointment stinks. Her report brought down the First Minister of the Crown, who had a majority of 80 from the electorate, brought down by a bureaucrat who now turns out to be backing the Socialist Party. This appointment invalidates her Partygate report and shows that there was a socialist cabal of Boris haters who were delighted to remove him. I love the idea that the, saying the first minister of the crown instead of the prime minister makes it sound um, more, more authoritative what he's saying there. Um, Boris Johnson, for his part, was a little bit more restrained in his response to the news. I do think it is a peculiarity, let me put it that way, that the person who conducted the inquiry into uh, what went on in number 10 and and the cabinet office, uh, who was presented to me as a person of uh, complete political uh, impartiality with absolutely no uh, political axe to grind, whatever, uh, has just been appointed the uh, the chief of staff of the leader of the Labour Party. I mean, I, I make no comment about it, except to say that I'm sure people, you know, may want to draw their own conclusions about the confidence they can place in her inquiry or the motives behind her, the way she conducted uh, her inquiry and in, into, um, into her report. I think, uh, you know, people, I think, how can I put this in the most, uh, in the most restricted, I think people will, will, may look at it in a different light. I'm going to go straight to you on this, Aaron, because I know you've got, I think, stronger opinions than me on this. Um, should, should we care about Keir Starmer appointing Sue Gray? Well, should we care is an ancillary question, Michael. I'm sure many people don't care. Uh, but it's an important story because it undermines the perception of neutrality within the civil service. Now, I've seen lots of pundits say this won't change anybody's votes. The red wall doesn't care. All of that's true. OK, nobody is suggesting that somehow by by selecting Sue Gray as his new chief of staff, that Keir Starmer is perhaps jeopardizing a potential electoral victory in 2024, 2025. Nobody's saying that. In fact, this is a very savvy appointment for Labour in so much as I can't imagine anyone better than Sue Gray trying to take control and master the machinery of government if Labour get through the next general election and form that government and Keir Starmer becomes the Prime Minister. However, yes, it's good for, for Labour, it's good for Starmer. It's very bad for the civil service. It undermines their reputation for neutrality. This is somebody who is not just any civil servant. She's one of the most senior civil servants in the country. And as Rhys Mogg said, it's pretty much the only thing I agreed with. The Partygate report was one of the major variables in bringing down the last prime minister, but one. Obviously, Truss uh, came after him subsequently. So it's not just any old civil servant. And then finally, she will clearly be privy to very valuable information at the apex of government, uh, which now potentially could help Labour. And she would have been privy to conversations and engagements 
and all kinds of, of things because of her role. And did people know that she was going to go and work for Labour? I'm sure that would have changed the tone and the content of many conversations and interactions with her. So I just think it's very bad form. And I think it does undermine the perception of neutrality, which does really matter. Now, no person is completely objective. Nobody's suggesting that. But the idea you can go from her job and the party get report immediately to work for the party of opposition, I think most sensible people would say that's not really proper. And we've had Labour talk about probity in government, professionalism. I think it's basic, basic failure of professionalism, personally, because you've basically gone to work for the other side overnight. I don't think it's right. And I think it discredits the good work of the civil service. Yeah, so it's a bit surprising it's not in their contracts. I wonder if there's something written to the contract about sort of, you know, non-disclosure agreements, and she's not allowed to disclose what she learned in the civil service to her next employer. But I mean, it's implausible that you wouldn't, right? Because you can, you can at least hint, you can say, I can't, I can't tell you exactly what was said. But I can say, if you look in this direction, you might find something interesting. <laughs> I'm sure um, that is, is, is very plausible. You'd have to be very self-controlled to not offer that kind of information to your new employer, especially in you know, uh, uh, a field so sort of uh, where you're so invested in what's going on as 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 politics, right? If she's genuinely invested in Labour winning an election, I would imagine that she is going to do everything in her power to help that happen. And therefore, if she does know any secrets from her time as a civil servant, she would presumably pass them on. Um, I want to talk a bit more about Sue Gray. She is an interesting character. This is from an iNewspaper profile of her from 2018. Um, so they write at the time, much remains unknown about the 60-year-old who in the 1980s took a strikingly unorthodox career break to run a pub in Newry, a hotbed of IRA and security force activity. In 2015, BBC Newsnight's policy editor Chris Cook described Mrs. Gray as, quote, the most powerful civil servant you've never heard of and also perhaps the most secretive you could ever hope to meet. It goes on, he said that she had astounding influence and was notorious for her determination not to leave a document trail, adding that, quote, even when a document trail exists, Ms. Gray is enthusiastic about keeping it a secret, advising special advisors of how they could destroy emails to thwart potential freedom of information requests. Now, I remember us sort of talking about these quotes when the Sue Gray report was being written, because we were saying this doesn't necessarily seem to be someone who's particularly interested in, in transparency. Um, but probably the, the even more interesting thing um, from that passage is the idea that a top civil servant took an unorthodox break, break to run a pub in a hotbed of IRA and security force activity. Um, now, to many people online, and I think it's actually the insinuation of the article, if you're looking at how close this is next to how secretive she is, was she a spy? You know, if you are working for the British state and you say, oh, I'm going to randomly go and start running a pub in just the place where we want to be spying on members of the IRA and potentially sort of recruiting assets, etc., that would be a sensible thing to do. Potentially, that would be why she ended up, you know, becoming so rated. That's the kind of thing um, that the British establishment is going to be very appreciative of. Britain's fourth estate don't think there's much to see here, though. Um, Pippa Krara is political editor at The Guardian. She tweeted yesterday, My favourite Sue Gray story is that she once faced down IRA paramilitaries who attempted to hijack her car when she was on a career break in the 1980s as a landlady in Newry, an IRA stronghold at the peak of the Troubles. 
So Pippa Carrara sort of dropped all the sort of unorthodox career break, which is what the, the journalist at the eye had said. It's sort of the, the insinuations that she was secretive. And Pippa Carrara was just like, oh, it's just a, a career break uh, in, in Northern Ireland in an IRA stronghold from a top civil servant. Nothing to see here at all. And ha ha ha, what a funny story has come out of that situation. Aaron. I suppose a couple of things to comment on here. What does this say about the lobby that they, you know, this, this, this very senior person in government has this very interesting part of their CV, which definitely raises questions. They're, they're now going on to potentially an even more influential role, which is chief of staff for the opposition party, which, you know, by most accounts is going to be the next government. And they just want to sort of like dig up some funny stories from, from the 1980s and not really ask any questions more serious than that. Well, I think a healthy attitude, Now, I hope most of the people watching or listening to this would agree, a healthy attitude to life is, is basic skepticism, okay? If somebody knocks on your door and says, look, I've got something to sell to you and make you loads of money and it, you know, it, it costs a tenner, or you know, I can make you look 30 years younger with this potion, uh, give me a direct debit of £10 a month, M most people say, well, okay, hold on, show me your working, show me the proof, show me the track record, show me the testimonials, basic, basic skepticism, right? And I think most people also carry this through into, into politics and current affairs. I think there's a basic skepticism of politicians, of government departments, of the media. I think that's all, and I think it's very healthy. And sometimes you can be very skeptical, as for instance, we were, of you know, the US State Department when it's saying things about Ukraine. They're saying, oh, they're ready to do X, Y, Z. And we say, well, hold on. You said all of these things about Iraq 20 years ago. None of it turned out to be true. So there's a baseline there. You weren't telling the truth then, you know, we're, we're skeptical now. And in that instance, actually, they were telling the truth. Their, their intelligence when it comes to Europe is a hell of a lot better than West Asia and the Middle East, it turns out. That's a, that's a, you know, that's a good thing to know. You can trust them in certain parts of the world, or at least, you know, they have an accurate picture of what's going on and other parts they don't. So skepticism, even if it's not always warranted, is useful, I think, personally. What you see with the lobby is a complete absence of skepticism. If it's their side, if it's the people they agree with, if it's the people they like, complete credulity, utter credulity, no questions asked, right? So Pippa Crerar, if the leader of the opposition says something or does something, wonderful, you know, wonderful man. If um, Rachel Weirmouth, who I perhaps, you know, unprofessionally call Rachel Weirmouth, Rachel Kearmouth at the New Statesman, um, if, you know, if, if, if Keir Starmer blocks people from long lists, you know, she, she won't mention it. But of course, if anything like that happened under Corbyn, which it, it didn't, uh, we would never hear we would never hear the end of it. You know, this would be Stalinism 2.0. So the point is, for their side, their people, the goodies, they're very credulous. They believe everything. But when it comes to the other side, the baddies, then you just can't believe them under any circumstances whatsoever. Uh, I, again, I think this is a real basic journalistic failure. And by the way, it goes beyond the United Kingdom. It's the same in the United States, of course. You saw it with, you know, the the the, the Biden, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story. Big story, big story. Now, I'm not suggesting that it meant that you know Biden shouldn't be the the president or whatever. I'm saying it's a huge story. It was censored on Twitter. Matt Taibbi's done very good work on this, uh, purely because it was attacking the wrong person, and you basically saw a chorus of silence across progressive media in the United States because, you know, it was attacking the wrong guy. Now, if the, the shoe was on the other foot and there was a story like this around Donald Trump Jr. or, you know, Eric Trump or whatever, uh, and it impugned the character of the Trump family, my God, they would have been all over it. Now, on the one hand, you can say, that's hypocrisy. 
And that's obviously true. But I also think it gets down to this point, like I say, of if it's the people I agree with, they must be right. If it's the people I don't like, if it's the baddies, they must be wrong. And of course, that applies to Fox News too. Uh, with political polarization, we, we also see, I think, increasingly basic failures when it comes to journalism. Very credulous with the people we like, believe absolutely nothing, hostile skepticism with the people we dislike. Doesn't help democracy. It doesn't inform people that want to know more about what's going on. Let's move on to our next story. The inquiry into the 2017 Manchester bombing has released its third and final report. This was focused on what MI5 knew about Salman Abedi, the attacker, and whether better use of intelligence could have prevented the attack happening. The conclusion was damning. This is the retired High Court judge who led the inquiry. I have found a significant missed opportunity to take action that might have prevented the attack. There was a realistic possibility that actionable intelligence could have been obtained which might have led to action preventing the attack. The reasons for this missed opportunity included a failure by the security service, in my view, to act swiftly enough. The specific intelligence that was not acted upon has not been revealed publicly. Instead, it's in a closed report, which can be seen by the security services themselves and some others with security clearance. We're told that's to protect national security. But anger about MI5 failings is palpable. This was the response to the report from the mother of Liam Curry, a 19-year-old who was killed alongside his 70-year-old girlfriend at the Manchester Arena. All we as families have asked for from day one is the truth. Acknowledgement of failures. Hopefully next time there won't be as many families going through the utter heartbreak we have had to endure for the last five years, nine months, one week and one day. Forgiveness will never be an option for such evil intentions and those that played any part in the murder of our children will never ever get forgiveness. From top to bottom, MI5 to the associates of the attacker, we will always believe that you all played a part in the murder of our children. That was the mother of Liam Curry, one of the 22 people who died in the Manchester Arena bombing. Um, the director of the MI5 in response to the report has issued this apology. MI5 exists to stop atrocities to all those whose lives were forever changed on that awful night. I am so sorry that MI5 did not prevent the attack at the Manchester Arena. So as I've said, the specific intelligence that was not passed on remains classified, but the most interesting parts of what are publicly available pertain to Salman Abedi's time in Libya. Um, so the report says this, I consider it likely that Salman Abedi and Hasham Abedi were radicalised in Libya to a significant extent. I also find that it is probable they obtained some form of training or assistance in how to build a bomb in Libya, as well as counter-surveillance training. The evidence is not sufficiently clear for me to say on which visit or visits to Libya in the period between 2011 and 2017 this took place. I explore the information that is available in some further detail in volume three in brackets closed. So the detail here is in that part of the report, which is only viewable by the security services and by certain people with clearance. I should say the reason they're showing it only to them and just not publishing at all is that they're saying this is so they can 
improve um, how they behave next time, how they can sort of um, protect against future risks without exposing secrets which might damage their ability, um, I suppose, to learn from their mistakes. Um, Salman Abedi, who had been fighting in the Libyan civil war, had returned to the UK just four days before the attack. And the report says he may even have entered the UK on that occasion with the switch he used to detonate the Manchester Arena bomb. Um, so this is in the report. The bomb that Salman Abedi constructed in May 2017 contained a Sistema 45910 switch. It was manufactured in early March 2016 in Romania. Once manufactured, it was sold on to wholesalers in Italy, Tunisia and Denmark. The Tunisian wholesaler supplied Libya. In my view, there is a material possibility that this switch was acquired in Libya by Salman Abedi between the 15th of April 2017 and the 18th of May 2017. I cannot conclude that this is more likely than not, but it is the most likely of a number of possibilities. He also says there is a real possibility that the switch was acquired in Libya and brought into the UK by Salman Abedi on the 18th of May 2017. Now, that final fact to me seems rather extraordinary. So he, he, he's very clear to say this isn't the most likely. He's saying there isn't a more likely scenario, but this isn't, he can't say that, you know, the probability suggests he did enter um, the UK with this detonator switch. But the idea that it's, it, it's possible that he arrived to a UK airport with the switch that he then used four days later in the Manchester bombing, which killed 22 people, I think is is rather extraordinary. I'm, I'm surprised that isn't bigger news when this is talked about. Um, of course, and why I say the sections pertaining to Libya are so interesting is because the role of the Libyan civil war in this tragedy raises the specter that it wasn't just passive failings by the secret services that led to this attack happening, but rather in the events that ultimately led to the attack, they had active involvement. Now, this is an article from the Middle East Eye. It was published in 2018. In the piece, there are accounts from militants who went to fight with rebels in 2011, such as this. One British citizen with a Libyan background who was placed on a control order, so that's effectively house arrest, because of fears that he would join militant groups in Iraq, said he was shocked that he had been able to travel to Libya in 2011, shortly after his control order was lifted. I was allowed to go, no questions asked, said the source, who wished to remain anonymous. He said he had met several other British Libyans in London who also had control orders lifted in 2011 as the war against Gaddafi intensified, with the UK, France and the US carrying out airstrikes and deploying special forces soldiers in support of the rebels. They didn't have passports. They were looking for fakes or a way to smuggle themselves across, said the source. But within days of their control orders being lifted, British authorities returned their passports, he said. The article goes on to discuss another fighter. Alal Yunis, another British citizen who went to Libya, described how he was stopped under Schedule 7 counter-terrorism powers on his return to the UK after a visit to the country in early 2011. Schedule 7 allows police and immigration officials to detain and question any person passing through border controls at ports and airports to determine whether they are involved in terrorism. He said he was subsequently asked by an intelligent officer from MI5, the UK's domestic security agency, are you willing to go into battle? While I took time to find an answer, he turned and told me the British government have no problem with people fighting against Gaddafi, he told Middle East Eye. This is the source. As he was travelling back to Libya in May 2011, he was approached by two counter-terrorism police officers in the departure lounge who told him that if he was going to fight, he would be committing a crime 
But after providing them with the name and phone number of the MI5 officer he had spoken to previously and following a quick phone call to him, he was waved through. As he waited to board the plane, he said the same MI5 officer called him to tell him that he had, quote, sorted it out. The government didn't put any obstacles in the way of people going to Libya, he told Middle East Eye. The vast majority of UK guys were in their late 20s. There were some, 18 and 19, the majority who went from here were from Manchester. Now, we don't know if Salman Abadi himself was encouraged by the UK security services to go to fight in Libya. In 2011, he was just 16. Um, he was probably more likely to have been an active fighter in the second Libyan civil war, which lasted from 2014 to 2020, in which the UK had less of a stake in. But Aaron, given the centrality of the Libyan civil war to this story, and the fact that the British were very involved in the Libyan civil war, it seems surprising that this has not been given more weight in, in the media coverage of this story. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. It's almost as if, Michael, frankly, there's a bit of a coordinated set of distractions to not talk about the real substantive issues here, which is, yes, of course, MI5 failed to stop this happening. Hugely important to say that. Their job is domestic homeland security and to stop terrorist attacks precisely like this. So I understand the folks on MI5. And I know you've just mentioned an MI5 agent there. But MI6's role, Michael, is about effectively advancing UK interests abroad, and meant to be keeping us safe too, but overseas rather than domestically. A bit like with the CIA abroad for the United States and the FBI at home. And there is an argument that the actual, the objectives of MI5 and MI6, MI6 is the James Bond agency, were in fundamental contradiction in the early 2010s, not just with Libya, but also Syria. Because on the one hand, obviously you want to keep domestic nationals in this country safe, but on the other, they looked at extremist potential jihadists as a tool to undermine and attack regimes like Bashar al-Assad in Syria and Gaddafi in Libya. They are useful because they're the enemy of my enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And of course, this was incredibly myopic, stupid, short-sighted, and dangerous. You said I bet he wasn't there in 2011. Frankly, we do not know. We do not know. We know that his father, Ramadan Abedi, was a prominent figure in the LIFG, which was an anti-Gaddafi opposition movement for many years. Just, just to um, say, I think we, we, do, we do know he was there in 2011. It's just, it's, it's unclear whether he was fighting in, in 2011. Well, yeah, my point is, Precisely that, Michael. We, we, do, we do not know his role in 2011 when I'm making this precise point about fundamentally there was this tension between MI6 and MI5. Um, and he may have been in that cohort, which were effectively being encouraged by MI6 to go overseas. Again, this isn't wild speculation. It's documented in that MEE piece, but also Peter Oborn's written heroically about it, about it numerous times. Uh, and it's a really, really important point to make. The objectives of the objectives of MI6 and objectives of MI5 were seemingly incongruent. The fact that this gentleman was encouraged, call him a gentleman, he doesn't really deserve the name, does he? The fact that this, this person was encouraged to travel overseas by an MI5 officer, however, makes this even more interesting because that should be totally beyond the remit of MI5. That should not be their job. They should not be getting involved in regime change in other countries. That simply should not be happening. And so like you say, Michael, the fact that we had control orders on people in this country, what's a control order? It's to stop people going overseas like these people into violent countries 
places with war where they may get involved in the conflict and come back, the control orders were to stop precisely that. These were dropped on many, many, many people by a home secretary. Do you know what her name was? Starts with a T, Theresa May. Who was the prime minister when the Manchester bombing happened? Theresa May. So it's pretty convenient. We didn't have that conversation in 2017. I tried to do precisely that, but of course, legacy media really wasn't on this story. Um, it's hugely worrying, Michael. And the fact you say the most extraordinary detail of this entire thing is the fact he may have brought the detonating fuse, the, the detonator, into the UK, and it wasn't it wasn't seen, wasn't realised. He was walking around with a giant bloody backpack after coming into the country several days earlier with a detonator and MI5 and MI6 were completely asleep at the wheel. It says a few things very quickly. There's not adequate communication between both MI5 and MI6, but also, and I think perhaps more concerningly, there were so many people like this, so many control orders dropped, so many dangerous radicals actually encouraged to travel overseas and learn the art of war before coming back that they couldn't keep tabs on all of them. That is a very frightening proposition to me. And it's one we're barely hearing in the media. Yeah, we aren't hearing it in the media. And we're going to do some media analysis here because I think it's, you know, whatever were the precise sequence of, of events, did MI5 or MI6 help Salman Abedi go to Libya? Were he or his comrades trained by Western forces? These are all very much live questions. Right. These should all be the basis of serious political scandals, which I think if dealt seriously with, you know, would create a public outcry and also would probably shift how people feel about British foreign policy. Right. Is it such a good idea to be taking out foreign leaders and allowing civil wars to, to start and then backing proxies, whatever their ideologies might be? Right. So this should be a really big political story, a really serious one. Unfortunately, what should be a story about dangerous foreign policy has instead been turned into a stupid political row about political correctness. You can't make this up. So Suella Braverman this week claimed that terrorist attacks are the fault of political correctness gone mad. And media outlets friendly to Suella Braverman have run with that. This was Jacob Rees-Mogg on GB News. The Manchester Arena bombing inquiry released its third and final report today, concluding that intelligence services missed a significant opportunity to stop the bombing. The attacker, Salman Abedi, had been on our security services radar for several years. The Director General of MI5, Ken McCullum, expressed his profound sorrow over the report's findings. The report, however, was published not long after the Home Secretary suggested that extremists have been allowed to thrive in a protective climate of political correctness. Well, at the time of the tragedy back in 2017, it was reported that one of the security guards at the arena had had suspicions about the attacker but did not approach him because he did not want to be branded as a racist. So is the Home Secretary correct? This incident may be considered a one-off by some, but the recent independent review of our counter-terror programme certainly affirms the Home Secretary's concerns. Jacob Rees-Mogg then went on to speak to a self-appointed national security expert who agreed with everything he and Suella Braverman said. And his next guest, she's called Harriet Sargent, had an even more out-there take. A disclaimer, I was also on this panel. MI5 is actually carrying the can for the failure, and the far bigger failure, of our immigration system, of our, our asylum and immigration system, and that we have at the moment large numbers, literally thousands of people coming into this country and 
the border control have no idea of where they come from or even basic things like what their age are. And yet suddenly MI5 is meant to know everything about right. them and being able to make a risk assessment. And Michael, that seems do, crazy. Do you think that's fair? I mean, it turned out that I was being looked at by Prevent because they thought I was so dangerous because I seemed to be in favour of Brexit. And that is worrying that they were looking at people who are elected politicians and they were let, letting real terrorists through the net. I, I, I'll put that to one. I don't want to cast aspersions about how extreme your opinions uh, thank are. You. And, and unfortunately, I didn't hear the, the contributions no. of your, yeah. your previous contributor. Yeah. But I do want to, I suppose, comment on the whole framing of this discussion because we've had a report, which I think was quite a serious report, independent public inquiry. And what that has suggested is that there were serious failings from MI5. And yes, as you say, potentially this was one person's human error. But the big picture here, which we're not talking about, I think, is that this guy had come back three, four days earlier from Libya. Yeah. That wasn't an immigration issue. This was, well, a, British, this was a British citizen. Um, and he had gone to Libya to fight with jihadists. Yeah. And that was part of British foreign policy. So for a long period, MI6 were quite keen on jihadists going because they thought they would fight Gaddafi and they yes, would fight on the UK side. Is. And, and so for us to be having a conversation about um, political correctness, mm. cancel culture or immigration, when there is a serious government failure. So they, you're saying here, there was a simple foreign policy yeah. failure, they were worried about Syria but not about Libya? No, no, so, so that's, that's, not the failure I'm, okay. that's not the failure I'm talking about. The failure I'm talking about is thinking that it's a sensible foreign policy to take out foreign leaders, mm. as we did in Libya in 2011. We said we were just going to be doing a no-fly zone, but in, we, we went for regime change. At the same time... Do you think regime change is a sensible foreign policy? No, no, you're, no, you're misunderstanding no, Sorry, I, I, I thought okay, you said that. I, I, the, the foreign policy, which I am saying is a mistake, yeah, yeah, yes, I agree was to yes. uh, bring about regime change in Libya. And at the same time, because MI6 thought it was useful to overthrow Gaddafi, to allow jihadists to go and fight in that civil war. Now, Abedi, Salman Abedi, he, was, he, he learnt how to make a bomb... Mm in Libya, yeah. fighting in a civil war which started because of British foreign policy. And this to me seems much more important than political correctness. In, in, in this very sensible report, political correctness wasn't mentioned at all. I mean, I have to say, it was, it was like being on another planet, right? So you had this, this bizarre premise that it's all down to political correctness. Then the next guest he goes to says it's all about immigration. This is someone who was born in the UK, right? Political correctness did not cause someone to get taught how to make a bomb in the Libyan civil war by ISIS, right? Political correctness did not mean that this person wasn't searched properly on the way back from a civil war in Libya, right? It, it was just a bunch of non sequiturs and very, very bizarre. When, as, as we've been talking about, there is a real political scandal here. We have had a massive terrorist incident in this country. Many people have died. We've, we've laid out and identified many of the background issues here with the failures of MI5, failures of MI6, and so on. And instead of having that conversation, people are saying, oh, well, security guards in, outside the Manchester Arena didn't stop him because they didn't want to be called a racist. He was being trained to murder people in Libya by ISIS. And we encouraged people to go, British nationals, to come and go into war zones and learn the arts of war. And you're talking about whether or not somebody's worried about being called a racist at the Manchester Arena. It is obscene, Michael. It is obscene and it is obscenely stupid. I know sometimes I raise, you know, we, we talk about these things on the Viral Live and I raise my voice, bit of theatre. This is so preposterous, so self-defeating. Oh, prevent. How did prevent that Salman Abedi threw the, slipped through the net? 
Salman Abedi's father, Ramadan Abedi, was known to this country as an extremist in the 1980s. That's precisely why he was here, because he was an opposition figure to, to Gaddafi. That, that's why he was here. Oh, we didn't know, but apparently he was radicalized by the family. Yeah, no shit. Salman Abedi's father was a senior figure in the LIFG. We know all this. It's literally been documented. It's been written in the bloody Daily Mail. I don't have to go and read it on NavarroMedia.com or Jacobin. But this is the standard now of debate. And I know that clips from GB News, but Michael, I, I didn't see anything substantially better than that across broadcast media the entire day. And media in this country is very puerile, but particularly on foreign policy and security issues. My God, my God, can we not talk about things honestly? Very frightening. And I think personally, that was one of the real problems the establishment had with Labour under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn 2015 to 2019, because there was the possibility of an honest, open discussion about the failures of UK foreign policy in recent decades. That cannot be allowed to happen. If we'd had a proper, frank assessment of why this happened and who was to blame, some heads would have rolled at both MI5 and MI6, and a few politicians too, huh? which is precisely why we're not having that conversation, because some very powerful people lose out. It's also worth saying, just because... Um... You know, it was mentioned by Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I think it does need to be sort of qualified. And this is what lots of people who do blame political correctness say. The issue was that the security guard thought Salman Abedi was suspicious, but didn't want to go up and, and sort of search him because he was worried um, that it could be perceived that he was motivated by prejudice. Now, what, ha what actually happened in that situation wasn't that he said, oh, it would be too racist to do anything, so I'm going to let this guy do his thing. Now, what happened was he did what he was supposed to do in that situation, which was to call his superiors, but the radio wasn't working, right? And the police, it so happened, were not in the vicinity. Um, they'd all gone on break at the same time. Two of them, I think from the British Transport Police, were going on a 10-mile round trip to buy a kebab. So, so the idea this is about political correctness and not complete incompetence is, again, for the birds, and incredibly politically motivated, I think. Let's go on to our next story. It's one of the biggest mysteries of the 21st century. Where did COVID-19 originate from? Now, there are two competing theories. The first is that COVID-19 came from natural origins and jumped from animals into humans. The other more controversial theory is that it originated from a lab. Well, the FBI this week have come down definitively on one side. What is the determination by the FBI? So, uh, as you note, Brett, uh, the FBI has for uh, quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Let me step back for a second. You know, the FBI has folks, agents, professionals, analysts, virologists, microbiologists, et cetera, who focus specifically on the dangers of biological threats, which include things like novel viruses like COVID, uh, and the concerns that, that in the wrong hands, some bad guys, a hostile nation state, a terrorist, a criminal, uh, the threats that those could pose. So here you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government controlled lab that killed millions of Americans. And that's precisely what that capability uh, was designed for. I should add, that, uh, that our work related to this continues. And there are not a whole lot of details I can share that aren't, aren't classified. I will just make the observation that the Chinese government seems to me has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate uh, the work here, the work that we're doing, the work that our US government and, and close foreign partners are doing 
Um, and that's unfortunate for everybody. The Department of Energy has also come out in favour, or the US Department of Energy, I should say, has also come out in favour of the lab leak theory, though with low confidence. And the majority of US intelligence agencies, there are a hell of a lot of them, um, the majority disagree. They think it's from natural origins, although I think pretty much all of them are saying they have fairly low confidence either way. The lab leak theory, though, has a growing list of proponents. One of them is Jeffrey Sachs, the renowned, science, renowned economist sorry, who headed the Lancet's commission on COVID-19. He's suspicious there was a cover-up and cites as evidence a meeting convened by the American National Institute of Health, the organization headed by Anthony Fauci at the start of the pandemic. From the very beginning of this pandemic, NIH got together a group of virologists and asked them in a private call, what do you think? And you know what they said? Well, some of them said, I don't see how this could have happened naturally. Mm. And others said, 50-50, mm, lab, natural. Mm. Uh, and others said, odds on, uh, lab. And you know what? We never heard a word about that. We only heard one narrative. And then if you go a little bit more deeply, which of course I, I was doing hour by hour, day to day, a few days after that then secret call, which became publicly known, a first draft of a paper appeared called Proximal Origins of the SARS-CoV-2 Virus. And it said, definitively, this is natural. He said, how did you go from a phone call where they say, we don't know, to a definitive outcome? Well, quite suspicious. And when you look at the argument why it couldn't have come from a lab, the footnote, the critical footnote, was to a 2014 article about a 2020 outbreak. Okay, that is weird. Wait, I don't understand. A 20, I, I don't understand. So there, there was an article that was talking about an anticipated- So, it, it, so here's the story. March okay. 2020, the critical article comes out saying, this is natural. And then they say in the text, it couldn't have come from a lab experiment because we know from the lab that this virus, this kind of virus, was not being used in the lab. So it couldn't have come from the lab. Footnote number 20 to 2014. I said, what do you mean? Didn't some research get done between 2015 and 2019? Right. Well, something was, you know, it makes your blood pressure rise a little bit and your hair stand on end. Jeffrey Sachs is very interesting on this. That was him sort of giving one reason why he's suspicious of um, the narrative that this was um, of natural origins. He also gives a number of other reasons. He was um, chair of the Lancet Commission into COVID-19, appointed um, a bunch of people to look into the origins of the virus and then ended up believing that a lot of them had vested interests in, in covering up the origins because they were um, invested themselves, not so much financially, but in terms of their professional careers in what's called gain of function research, which is research in a lab where you try and make viruses more contagious or more um, amenable to infecting humans. And people do, they, they do this not because they want to infect people, they do this so that they can come up with preemptive vaccines and the like. Um, Jeffrey Sachs talks about how quite a lot of this is done within the national security establishment. Again, not necessarily to create a bioweapon to infect some other country, because that would be pretty self-defeating anyway, but I suppose potentially to try and preempt what a terrorist or a enemy state might be trying to do when they try to um, create a very infectious, damaging 
bioweapon. If you've if you've already invented the dangerous bioweapon, then you can get a head start when it comes to creating the vaccine. Of course, um, this all becomes rather self-defeating if it manages to leak from the lab. Um, a lab leak, of course, happens, well, presumably, um, the most likely route would be via someone who works in that facility and becoming infected themselves and then infecting people outside of the lab. We should say that I think neither of us are particularly qualified to say, yes, it came from a lab. Yes, it was of natural origins. Um, but I do think we, we do have the qualifications to sort of comment on the debate and also, I think, talk about the significance of what would it mean if it were um, uh, a disease which originated in, in a lab as opposed to originated in, in, in animals. The lab theory is a plausible theory. It always has been a plausible theory. The point was there was no evidence for it. There was no evidence for it. Uh, what's the evidence for this just being a case of zoonotic spillover, which is to say a pathogen goes from one species to another? And that, of course, is how innumerable viruses have harmed humans over the years, from cholera to HIV AIDS to measles. You know, This is all um, a case of zoonotic spillover. The pathogen goes from another creature to our own, our own species. Um, there's lots of evidence for that in so much as it's happened many times before. So I, I would have liked to have seen in that interview, Michael, some pushback on what Jeffrey Sachs is saying. Well, okay, well, why would they think that? We've had already, a coronavirus is a unique kind of RNA virus. We've had two already before COVID-19 this century. SARS at the start of the 21st century and MERS, less often talked about, particularly an issue in the Arabian Peninsula. Nobody is saying that those were started as a result of a lab leak. Okay, so we've had two of these kinds of virus already this century. We have a third one in China. Now, circumstantially, it's very plausible, particularly because there is the Wuhan Institute of, uh, you know, virology or whatever it is, uh, which was just up the road. It's important to also say, however, that Wuhan is one of the largest cities in China. Um, and SARS itself emerged from East Asia. So I would want to have seen him being pushed back a little bit more because I, I, I don't understand what is the evidence. First of all, I don't know how you can conclusively determine what was the cause. That's the first thing. This is all speculation, by the way. With regards to HIV AIDS, people aren't really sure about where it emerges from. Some people think it's from bushmeat in sub-Saharan Africa in the 1950s or 60s, but we, we don't know. Um, and, and I think it's the same here. It's just about plausible hypotheses. But why are some people that they're talking to who are clearly very competent and, um, and credible and authoritative in the field of epidemiology, why are they saying it's a lab leak? And, and, and he doesn't say that. I think that is critical to me. I'm open to the possibility of it. It's a plausible hypothesis. But you need to have some evidence. A paper trail, for instance, within the Chinese government where they say, oh God, this has happened, or witnesses or testimony. Maybe you can enlighten me, Michael, but none of that exists. So unless it does, we're in a very speculative world. But hitherto, all of the viruses which have hurt humans in the history of our species are a result of zoonotic spillover, species crossover. For this to be any different, I think you have to have a relatively high threshold. And it doesn't appear to be being met, um, which is a shame because, you know, Jeffrey Sachs clearly has some quite strong feelings about this. I think I have um, more sympathy with his argument than you've expressed there. I suppose I, I do want to say before I forget, actually, the, the FBI director speaking to Fox News, who is not normally a source I would um, think of as particularly reliable, the idea he says this is a lab that was controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, that can just be thrown out, right? Because the, the people who are the serious people who think that this was probably a lab leak, their story very much involves the American government and the Chinese government sort of working together. It's not a nefarious plot by either country to irresponsibly create some super dangerous 
virus. It is these countries working together um, in these labs, which may or may not have been working in a sort of irresponsible way and playing with fire. So I think we can we can throw out that sort of basically anti-China sort of jingoistic sort of national security. This is the Chinese virus, it's the Trump line, of course. But the, the argument from Jeffrey Sachs, so it's important to say no one, I, I haven't really read anyone who says definitively it's this or that. So most epidemiologists seem to at the moment sort of be saying, probably on balance, natural origin. Then you've got lots of national security people and journalists saying, on balance, probably um, a lab leak. Now, the, the, the lab leak evidence is in part circumstantial because you've got this Institute of Virology you know, in Wuhan, which was actively investigating coronaviruses. And then in that clip from Jeffrey Sachs, what you saw is he basically has no trust in the top epidemiologists who are creating the the sort of evidence base to say it couldn't have been um, from the lab because he's saying their evidence is pretty shoddy. If you're saying it can't have been from a lab because there was no virus with this particular um, genetic makeup in that lab in 2014, then that's a, a, a shoddy piece of evidence. And because you've drawn such a strong conclusion from that shoddy piece of evidence, I'm suspicious of a cover-up. Now, I think that's fairly reasonable. I mean, I, the, the other evidence that people talk about is the fact that this, this virus seems to have certain features um, which it would have been difficult to sort of evolve in, in nature, too many mutations. Now, I, I should be clear, this is the point at which it becomes above my pay grade. I, I'm obviously not an expert in the genetic makeup of, of viruses, but it does seem to me that there is, you know, I think it's more than just sort of casting aspersions. I think there is a serious evidence base behind both theories, um, but both theories are well, remain unproved. Um, I suppose very quickly, Aaron, because we need to do a final story. Would it matter either way? Of course it matters, yes. Um, but to respond to what you said, you know, we're only going to know this definitively if there's like a, a, a leaked WeChat, you know, and some, you know, uh, virologists in Wuhan, uh, Institute of Virology says, oh my God, what have we done? Okay, if that happens, then yes, we're going to definitively know. Uh, but of course it matters, Michael. And in a way, if it is a lab leak, it's extraordinarily fortunate that it's something like COVID-19, which like you say, people do work on these viruses precisely because you want to preempt them and be able to develop a vaccine. Though I think that somewhat undermines the lab leak theory in so much as China developed a vaccine after Moderna does. So they're working on these things to develop vaccines for coronaviruses, but they don't have the coronavirus vaccine first. Seems a bit strange. But the idea that, for instance, something like Ebola, which has a, a fatality rate of 30, 40%, if you're working on a pathogen like that, which of course would be a bioweapon, and it somehow manages to get out of a laboratory, our species is in big trouble, Michael. I don't know if people have been watching The Last of Us recently. I won't make any spoilers, but if you had that kind of leak, you, you would see the military just start to you know, bomb cities, I think, wholesale, I assume and obviously try and close them off um, wherever the source and where patient zero was and whatnot, because that would be devastating. So in a way, if it is a leak, the fact that you've got a mortality rate, obviously it's appalling. Hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands in this, in this country and across Europe died. Millions died across the world. But, you know, that's why it matters, because it could have been so much worse. Final story. Lee Anderson, the Tories' new deputy chairman, has given a pretty vile interview to Nick Robinson at the BBC. Let's take a look. When I hear that uh, protesters uh, are protesting, and these aren't far-right extremists, they're just normal family people from, from some of these towns and villages that are upset that 
you know, overnight, two or three hundred young men have arrived, and they're, you know, they're saying things to to young girls. And I know there's been a few uh, attacks and and some horrible incidents. So, of course, people are going to be concerned. That's just human nature. You know, at the end of the day, when you live in a community, you expect to be safe, uh, and you don't like sudden change. That's that's how humans uh, behave. Humans don't like sudden. Loads of humans get used to sudden change. You know, this essentializing about human nature is so bizarre. I mean, obviously, that's not the most offensive part of that clip. The most offensive part is this random, you know, sort of like, oh, all these incidents have happened. Outrageous, shocking incidents. So you can't just use these vague, big claims. Oh, asylum seekers and attacks, vicious attacks. It's like, what's your evidence? I mean, even if you have one, two, three, four bits of evidence, you can't then say it's a good idea for people to go and have big protests outside hotels with 200 people who have been fleeing, you know, war and violent situations, right? It's it, the idea that someone can be um, a bit annoyed, right, that you've got a government policy which is putting 200 or whatever asylum seekers in a hotel in your rather small, poor community fine. If you want to write a letter to your MP, fine. If you go and protest outside the hotel where those asylum seekers are, saying that you hold collective responsibility, essentially, to the people who are staying there, that is racist, right? I don't think there is, there, there is no two ways about this. Any idea that protesting a hotel full of hundreds of asylum seekers can be anything other than racist is, to my mind, for the birds. I want to show you another clip um, though, uh, we're not just going to get angry at Lee Anderson because there are interesting um, things to talk about here. And Newsnight had a good segment, I think, on the backlash against asylum seekers being housed in hotels. That was from this week, and this is a clip from that. Where's your legal, Miss No right to be here? Protest in a holiday coastal town out of season this weekend. Far-right nationalists descended on the Lincolnshire town of Skegness to exploit local unease about hotels housing asylum seekers. A home office policy that has caused friction with locals who feel that their concerns are being ignored. At Saturday's march, some locals were among the 200 to 300 people who marched through Skegness to stage a rally in a local park under the watchful eye of the police. But it was clear that some in the crowd didn't appreciate our presence. Oh, make me talk streets where you know. Don't you take us for fools! We know they are not refugees. They are illegal immigrants. March was attended by far-right groups from outside Skegness. One of those was Patriotic Alternative, a small group led by a former leading activist in the British National Party and the group made leading speeches at the event. At this time of year, not a lot should be going on in the coastal resort of Skegness. Facing the North Sea, this seaside town is famously bracing, even more so in late February. But Skegness is one of a number of towns and cities, including holiday resorts, that the Home Office is using to house asylum seekers. There are around 220 asylum seekers housed in the town of 22,000. Some locals and businesses are concerned about the effect that the use of this seafront accommodation could have on the local economy and the town's image. Both the threes, 33. It's eyes down at the local social club where the punters are chasing a full house. But the housing of asylum seekers is something everyone is aware of. We think that we're being put on with this 
with the amount of the asylum seekers what we've got. We're not saying we don't want any, but there's a lot. Now, and I thought that was a very interesting clip. I think uh, because it showed quite why this is such a sort of stupid, dangerous, appalling policy by by the government. You're, you're allowing a situation whereby the extreme ideological far right can come into a community and make some horrific racist arguments. And then you also have some ordinary people who are kind of, you know, like, I don't mind asylum seekers being here, but if we're a town of 22,000 and there are 220 asylum seekers, that's one in 100, right? It, it, it seems like this is a bit disproportionate and that the country isn't yeah. coming together to sort this problem out. It's being well, I don't want to say being dumped on our community because you know there's nothing wrong with asylum seekers coming and living in your community. But you can see how it's a, it, it might feel odd that you've got all of these people housed in hotels in your community when you know none of this is happening in in other you know especially other wealthier parts of the country. I mean, what, what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, my sympathies with that lady who spoke last, Sarah. I, I, I can entirely understand what she's saying. There is a real concern, Michael, and we've spoken about this before on the show that the point of this policy is for it to be a chaotic failure. The point of this policy of, of an asylum system which barely works, people have processed incredibly slowly, they are dumped. I think that's the right word. It's not in their interest to be dumped in the middle of nowhere en masse. They can't work. They can't earn money. They can't really do very much. Um, the point of this is to radicalize people locally and to keep the issue of migration right at the top of the political agenda. Of course, if you had an efficient, effective asylum system, that would be less likely. And I think that's the real worry here, Michael, is that actually the government, people like Suella Breverman, have a vested interest in the radicalization of the UK electorate on this issue because they view immigration and small boats, that's the, that's the, 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 the phrase they like to use, they view that as the electoral Hail Mary for 2023, 2024. 2025, if it's that late, because they know they can't fight the next general election on public services. They know they can't fight it on living standards or wages or housing. Um, so it's going to have to be something like this. And it's terrifying, Michael, because it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. And I think the left has to be very, very smart on this, including under a Labour government, by the way. I think it'll actually be worse under a Labour government because then you'd have the Conservative Party, the right wing media going on this issue even more trying to make it even more of a, a totemic social crisis. When it, when it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. We had a great story up in the Borough Media earlier on today talking about people being moved from um, hotels in London out towards you know, coastal communities. It doesn't make sense for these small coastal places to have large numbers of people. It should generally be avoided, I think. That's just my two bobs worth. And it makes me particularly sad, Michael, as somebody, I was, I was born in Bournemouth, uh, to be from a coastal area, and they've been battered and bruised for the last 20 years, even Bournemouth, which is quite wealthy, comparatively speaking. And now this is this is entering the political conversation. It's going to radicalize many, many people. And the, and the centre-left in this country doesn't really have a, a proper response, I think. That's not to attack the centre-left. They're not the problem in this. But I think the, the appropriate response when you see those images is to say, look, economic, economically, you've been let down, left behind for decades. But the problem is not the fact that you've got 200 people suddenly stuck in a hotel who can't work here. The problem is our economic model. And those people are here because the Tories have no other issue to fight on but immigration. And it's here to radicalize you. And it's here to keep the issue of immigration at the top of the political agenda. Dysfunction is the name of the game on asylum policy in this country. I increasingly think it's intentional. No, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And that's precisely why I think this is such a scary story that needs to be sort of taken 
seriously and not just a sort of punch and Judy, you know, he's a racist, she's not a racist. I, th I, I think there's a, quite a sophisticated policy which is trying to increase division within society and sort of along an issue which the Tories think are favourable to them. So I think it does need to be sort of treated with some sensitivity. Thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back on Sunday. There will presumably be a downstream coming out. If not, come back on Monday um, for another edition of Navarro Live. Have a great weekend. You've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support.